Hi, and welcome to Off the Sidelines, your guide to getting into early stage investment. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I'm your host, Chris Wink. I'm the CEO of Technically. And hey there, it's Abby Lee Moscone. Hey. Hey. I'm here on this journey, learning right beside you, dear listener, on Off the Sidelines, which is supported by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. So, Chris, investors talk a lot about patterns. Look at what has succeeded in the past and copy it for the future, etc. Right, and that can work when we're talking about, like, go-to-market strategies. This strategy worked for this other similar company, so let's copy it for this other company. But it's an entirely other thing when it's about people. Like, if the only image in your head of a successful tech entrepreneur is a nerdy, young, white man in a hoodie, you could make a pretty flawed set of assumptions about who's worth betting on as an investor. Totally. And this isn't just about diversity for diversity's sake, though that is indeed a noble goal. As an investor, you also just might believe in a future that will need different companies to serve a diversifying marketplace. It's just a mindset shift an investor must take on. All successful investors begin with a thesis that sees the world differently than most others do. Well, right, because if you agree with the pack, you'd never outperform the market. Bingo. So, for an example, the rise in recent years of funds and firms that have built an investment thesis that focuses on founders who don't happen to be white men. That isn't necessarily an act of social justice, though some investors do in fact see that as a consequence. Instead, many have built a model around the belief that demographic shifts, the ones we know are coming in our country and the world, that those alone might predict that an investment portfolio of white male-led companies will just be badly prepared for the future. Ah, so it might not be a good bet to maximize returns. So that's a conversation we wanted to dive in for you. To do that, we spoke to two former investment bankers who met at Goldman Sachs and are now investing in female-led companies. First up. I'm Linnea Roberts. I'm the founder of Gingerbread Capital, uh, which is a venture fund focused on investing in women founders and co-founders. And I started the fund after a 30-year career on Wall Street. Uh, with the intent of trying to get more momentum around funding women founders. And her fellow partner. Hi, I'm Edek Pudum. I'm a partner at Gingerbread Capital and I work with Linnea. Uh, and I've been with her for a little over a year and loving the mission of backing high growth female founded companies. Two interviews for the price of one? All about the value here and off the sidelines. Oh man. I started by asking what they've learned in doing the work. And Linnea discussed how she found her way to focusing on investing in female entrepreneurs. Let's listen in. I think the biggest lesson when I started doing this is, has been in how few people are doing this. And as a woman that, um, you know, I have a, I have an investment portfolio. It was almost as though this asset class was completely absent from how I thought right, about investing. Right. And um, and so I definitely had my light bulb moment when I uh, initially made an investment um, in a company uh, started by two men and then thought to myself, wow, why, 
you know, I spent my entire career trying to support, retain, encourage women in financial services. Why aren't there more women doing this? And so I started tearing it apart and, you know, took out my, uh, a spreadsheet and started making a list of, <laughs> Trust me, spreadsheet. And, uh, we, you know, we're both ex bankers, so we, we don't really move very far <laughs> from our spreadsheets. Um, but started taking a look at, uh, who are the women that were investing. And I have to say as, uh, someone who, uh, spent her life and career in the financial services world and, and spent a lot of time around venture capital, I was very, very shocked at um, how few women there were in kind of traditional, formal venture capital. And then uh, what I really tripped across was the level of discomfort or disinterest in making private investments, um, at you know, for uh, you know, for a, as women. And one of my friends. Uh, asked me the question. She said, well, I don't understand what the problem is. Like what, what, why has this, the needle not moved? And I said, you know, the problem has been us and there are plenty of women with capital. And when, uh, you know, Reed Hoffman sells his company for over a billion dollars, he does a lot of philanthropy, but then he goes and he backs 20, 30 other founders and creates an ecosystem and that ecosystem has been really missing from the female founder and venture landscape. I would absolutely agree with that. And I, thinking back to investment banking days, um, I think about my, the men in my analysts or associate classes, and they started making private investments when we were associates. And I think about my female friends that were analyst associates and even managing directors and beyond they were not making investments. So there's something wrong there where we're both in similar careers. We are making similar kinds of uh, money from a salary perspective, but we're not making those same kind of decisions of guys passing the hat and saying, oh, my buddy's doing this. We're, we were just absent from that conversation. And it was an interesting thing that I wanted to make sure that I thought was something that we could rectify. And exactly as when I said, the women were missing from the picture. Women with agency were missing from the picture. Do you, do you guys see the gender parity in entrepreneurship question and the, the gender parity in investment question? Is that a chicken and egg or, or is there a clear start? Like we need more female founders first, or we need more female investors first? How, how do we break out of that cycle of network effect yeah. in gender parity? No, it's it's a great question. I don't think it's a chicken and egg. I think we need to be bolder and more intentional. And so one of the things that I heard a lot, which quite honestly motivated me to prove everybody wrong the first reaction you get when you when you say i'm gonna i'm going to focus exclusively on women founders and co-founders um long-standing venture capitalists will say well there's just not enough of them um and right. it's, it reminded me a lot of the days when we're trying to recruit women into finance you know there's not enough and I violently disagree with that statement. I just don't think we, we've just been looking the same way for decades. And if we're not going to change anything, then nothing's going to change. And so when you get very intentional and you screen only for women, you are able to sort from 
you know, your, your top quartile to your fourth quartile, and you can actually sort and prioritize, but you're looking at a very, very focused group. And I think being very intentional, whether it's setting a metric or quite honestly, just having women in the room. And so the big chicken or egg has been that no one has been willing to approach the business differently. And we all have a bias towards ourselves. So when I'm in the room, I do better with women. Right. <laughs> I, I like to hire people that look and act like me. And I, I think we can all say that. And I think we have to acknowledge that and then see what gets us out of our comfort zone. And so for me, one of the most important things I did was hiring Ida, who is 20 years younger than me. Um, she, she and I have very different backgrounds and we are better for that. Um, I didn't need someone to just agree with me all day long. (laughs) (laughs) You hit on something that I've heard that, that same pushback before in lots of different issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and even just like market segmentation in any way, um, for, for just pull out for a moment for investor ideology, how do you balance segmenting your audience in this case? Well, I'm only going to, I'm going to focus on, focus on, on female founders. And someone pushes back and you say, well, you've, you've now given yourself only half as many, you know, companies or whatever the, 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 the pushback might be. Um, why is that not limiting yourself, but instead, you know, developing a specialty or like, yeah, what, what do you gain from that segmentation? Um, that can come with a market segmentation or, or gender focus or a lens on, on social justice. Is there something that comes out of it that, that folks might miss if they push back? Oh, completely. Um, so uh, to be honest with you, when I started doing this, and I, and I want to get Ida's thoughts on it as well, I, I, I did have that kind of back of my mind concern. Am I going to be missing something? But you know what? I have... I have a broad portfolio, so I can make other investments if I really feel like it. So, um, but focusing on women or um, even to take it one step further, founders of color, by the time that they get to us, because it has been that much harder, um, and you might argue that there are fewer of them, but I would actually argue that there are not. They're just um, ha- don't get as much capital, so we tend not to see them later in these investment cycles. Um, that by the time they get to us, uh, these founders are super gritty. They have been through a lot. They have had to go up against it, and so I look at it as an arbitrage. If you have over 95% of venture capital dollars going into the hands of men. And um, I think the numbers say that that women start businesses almost at a faster rate uh, than men do. Then I see that much better when I get an opportunity to look at them. So I completely, I love to flip problems on their head and not, not look at this as, wow, what am I missing? But you said it, Chris what, what am I gaining? And I am gaining being able to look at this completely underinvested market and, uh, women and founders of color who have been at it and fighting against an uphill battle. And I think that they are better for it. And, 
it doesn't work 100% of the time. That's the nature of the beast. But I think that, uh, I think, to be honest with you, the traditional model has been largely missing out on uh, many, many women who have started high quality businesses uh, that really just need capital and advice. Mm-hmm. Ida, I wonder even if, if you could walk me through the gingerbreads model or approach, which is different than other our other funds. My, my understanding is, is even the, the equity expectation is run a little bit differently. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, that, you know, in your role as you've gotten more familiar with it, why that's important and, and why that's unique and, and what maybe someone else who's thinking about their own approach to investing, whether they want to be an angel, whether they would want to join a fund, whether they would want to, um, you know, do it any other number of ways. Why? Why your approach is, is works for you guys and is something others should learn from. Absolutely. Um, and to add a final point to Linnea's point about you know just the segment oh, yeah, in general, please. I always laugh when they say that uh, investing in women is niche. I mean, we are fifty one percent of the population <laughs> uh, and control <laughs> over eleven trillion in investable assets, and the assets as intergenerational are shifting are shifting more into the hands of women. So. I really find that funny that it's seen as uh, a weakness or that we're doing something almost philanthropic. Uh, We're both bankers and we definitely are both seeking returns and good returns at that. (laughs) Uh, And we find that these businesses are better vetted and they're really more far along, as Linnea said, by the time they come to us. And so with Gingerbread, our focus and what, you know, Linnea loves to do is look at a competitive landscape. So, you know, she looked at the competitive landscape or where is capital going to women in this ecosystem right now? And you're seeing a lot of seed players and there's some phenomenal seed funds like um, BBG Ventures, Female Founders Fund that have focused on backing uh, women at the seed uh, capital level. But when capital starts dry up when you hit to the series A, B, and beyond. You're seeing less female founders get to that stage and raising big amounts. And you're also seeing less women that are on the GP side writing the checks to back these founders. And so that's kind of the sweet spot in the right and right. the white space where gingerbread seeks to play. Uh, we're focusing on series A and later is our sweet spot. Uh, and by there, we know that these companies, we don't We don't pretend to say that we're going to find the next great idea, but really, I think what women do well is execute. And we're looking for the ones that have gotten it past the ideation phase, they're in the execution phase, and they're in the growth phase. And that's where we feel that we're stronger, that we can really bring in advice on that stage, and as well as introductions from our mutual networks that can get them in front of the people that will move their businesses along. So we may not be the largest check in the round, but we found that, you know, I love when says is punching above our weight in things where we can get them in front of people that will really move the needle for their businesses. You both mentioned your your background in banking. God bless you guys. Um, your 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 spreadsheet experience has proved really valuable. I wonder if you guys could share a little bit a little bit about um why that finance background, um, you know, at a at a big bank. I think you guys both spent time at Goldman Sachs. Um, what what that has what that has brought you on on the investing the early stage investing side is there a mindset is there a psychology and and what might an audience of people who are interested in in, in perhaps becoming investors themselves or are but are at the beginning stages are there any lessons you gained in your time there that they might appreciate yeah i think um i think 
uh, banking is, uh, it's like boot camp. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> right. and it is exceptional training, um, not just in the work itself, but you are thrown into, uh, the big pond with a lot of very, very talented, smart people and knowing how to, you know, I always use the survivor, you know, uh, and the survivor uh, theme of outwit, outlast, outplay. And there's a, there's a lot of that and less so from a peer to peer competitive standpoint, but how are you going to make this work for yourself? Cause everyone comes into it with d- different DNA, different personality types. And yet it is um, very analytically grounded, but yet you also have to have really strong interpersonal skills because you're constantly dealing with other people. And so I just think it's one of the most rigorous training camps, but also a rigorous kind of EQ camp, because if you can't do both, you probably won't last very long unless they have you kind of behind glass doors, you know, just thinking about stuff. (laughs) So, but neither, neither Ida or I would be very good at that at all. And, uh, and so to be honest with you, when we look to add to our team and when Ida and I first met, I don't even have to think about whether she can do the work and look at the analytics. And I mean, we, we speak in shorthand around numbers and everything because we grew up speaking the same language. Um, there's other things that we're not very good at. So, uh, that we have to make sure that we really run after and seek counsel from the outside. But for me, it's just, it's a base level understanding. I'm not saying that everybody has to come from that background, nor nor should everybody. Uh, but for us, um, especially looking at the stage at which we're looking at, it gives us the ability to assess with a reasonable amount of efficiency, how a company is performing, tracking, where, how long the capital will last for them. You know, those sort of kind of threshold questions we're able to get past really quickly and then focus on, you know, what is it that we really care about? The founder, the market, the competitive landscape. And I think additionally, I mean, it's gotten better in terms of gender dynamics, but Wall Street is still predominantly a male-dominated industry. Um, and, you know, when I was a trader, trading preferred stock, which is an instrument we use a lot in the, the venture world as well, we were at that point five women on the desk, uh, and it was the most on a Wall Street desk at that point, and that was around 2005, 2008. But, you know, when you're in an environment where the majority of the people, whether it's your colleagues or your customers, your clients are are men, you need to understand, well, what is it that connects through to the other side? And usually it's, you know, you've got to keep it pithy. You've got to get to the point uh, and you've got to come bringing the value. So we're able to bring that to our female founders as well, because in the venture world, the majority of the people they'll sit across the table from asking for funding will be men. And similarly, it's about getting the point across. It's not about having the most beautiful deck in the world, but it's being able to convey why your business, why you, why now, and how are you going to take it to that next level? So I think that's definitely a part 
part of the investment banking world because it's all about client service that is really helpful when you bring it down to early stage founders, often many of whom are first time founders and haven't had these experiences before, which is some of the value that we try to bring to our, our founders. We've interviewed people who have finance backgrounds and are investing. We've interviewed people who have specific subject matter expertise. You know, they were in a, in a market segment and that's where they've, they've now focused their investing. Um, we also have uh, people who, who, you know, would speak that they lead with their gut and, and the numbers are of course important, but, but they, they see it somewhat secondary. I just wonder how, what your thoughts are, are on those various backgrounds and, and, Lenny, I think you mentioned that every investor need not be from a, a an investment, uh, a finance background with, with spreadsheets in tow. But I, I wonder if you're in a room of investors and there are people who might lead with gut first or spreadsheet first or, you know, market industry segment or, or feel that they're industry agnostic. Are there any commonalities between that, that group or, or, or very important differences, strengths that one might have that others and, and people who are thinking about investing could, could look toward in themselves? Yeah, I think um, first of all, I think I think trusting your gut, whether it's around an individual or a business idea, is the most important thing that you can do. In fact, I'm often asked, "Can you think of times when you did trust your gut?" And I said, "Those are harder to come by, but I can definitely point out the times when I didn't trust my gut." Right. And uh, and it's sort of it's sort of like you you suspend. Um, that gut feeling. Now, I think guts are very strong and they're very well informed. So uh, again, there's a certain amount of kind of threshold decision-making that happens before I even let it go to my gut level. And, uh, and that's right. like, okay, um, you know, do, is this person, you know, a person of integrity? And, and I think that just comes from years of dealing with people, dealing with clients, dealing with colleagues uh, that, uh, that informs you. So I actually think it's possible to come at this in a lot of different ways. And I would encourage people that are thinking about this asset class or investing in general to not be dissuaded by, well, gee, I didn't have a career on Wall Street, therefore I can't do this. I actually think people that have really distinct industry knowledge um, or operating knowledge can be very, very effective. I think what they have to do is then decide kind of, okay, where am I going to focus? Because so, you know, perfect example is I'm much more comfortable looking at companies that are, uh, that already have a business model, you know, they have uh, a decent chunk of revenues. And so, as opposed to someone in that pre-concept idea. There are people that are really, really good at looking at what Ida calls the ideation phase. I know that I'm not good at that. And so I'm not gonna let my gut loose on that because I think it would be very, very bad for me <laughs> and very bad <laughs> for our, our returns because uh, it just, uh, I, I don't think I have the, the right thought process around it. Whereas someone that really understands a certain software industry or what's needed in a certain consumer area, I think they can do those seed and angel level investments uh, with a different lens than me. So I would not discourage anyone just by the, the discipline of the background to not look at this, but to figure out, okay, at what stage should I play? What types of companies 
should I look at? And then the other thing that we um, are really trying to encourage, if you're not comfortable looking company by company, then invest in a portfolio and, uh, and back a fund that will, they'll do that work for you and create that portfolio. And so I think sometimes we get into this thinking, oh, I got to go find, you know, 10 great companies to invest in. And the reality is you can uh, invest in Female Founders Fund or BBG Ventures or Inspired Capital and get a great portfolio uh, across a lot of different companies and let them do that work for you. And then decide, okay, where am I going to lean in? What's one or two companies that this portfolio has investment where I think I can add value? So I think it, I think you can come at it a lot of different ways. We have a, a few conversations in, in this podcast series uh, uh, about that, that angel network journey or individual angel investor yeah. journey. Um, I, I would love to actually just spend a, a, a moment here a little bit. If, if you're having lunch with you know, with if both of you, you know, if either of you are having lunch with a friend, high net worth individual, maybe they have thought about doing the angel, the angel investment journey. Maybe it doesn't feel right for them. They don't want to have the one-to-one -one relationship with the entrepreneur, uh, maybe even an angel fund, an angel network that they're not necessarily interested in that. Um, what the heck would you tell them to, to do before they left on the fund side? What should they do if they were, if they were thinking about becoming an LP? Um, or wanted to, or wanted to contribute to a fund. I should I should be a little broader. What is that advice you would you would give them? You're having lunch with a friend. They're interested in that. What should their next steps be after they have lunch with you? I'm gonna let Ida go first on this one. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I always like to say exactly what Lene said. How involved, or more importantly, depending on your uh, personal career, how much time do you have to invest in right. this? Because that's part of the thing is you need to put in a lot of time because there's a lot of companies that you'll have to look through and say no to before you'll want to say yes. Uh, so if you want to actually go deal by deal, then you need to know that you need to have the time and the willingness to go to different areas to meet founders. If you don't necessarily have the time, say you have your full-time career going and you want to start getting educated, I, th I think we find a lot of women want to feel like they know what they're doing before they jump in. There's great uh, resources out there. For instance, like 37 Angels. They run a boot camp that's giving you the 101 to investing from like reading the term sheet throughout the whole thing. So if you really want to get kind of a high level architecture of what is this private company world investing like, they have uh, boot camps for angels. So there's a companies and firms and organizations like 37 Angels, where you can actually get the fundamentals down. And then you can go on and then decide, okay, well, maybe I want to go do uh, some individual investing. And then you've got organizations like, a, say, a Plum Alley, if you want to invest with others and say you're putting in, you want to start dabbling in your toe and put in a small amount of capital to work, you can then have them pooled and aggregated around a syndicate that will then invest a larger amount in, and you'll get to meet the entrepreneurs and they'll do some of the vetting for you. You ultimately still make that decision. And then if you're still saying, no, I still might not have enough time, then it's about 
about starting to look uh, to become an LP in a fund. Um, and the easiest for individuals, depending on your capital means, is likely to be an emerging or earlier stage fund because those are when individuals can still get in. Because when you think about the, you know, the Koyas or the Kleiners of the world, individuals are rarely getting a look at their funds anymore. It's really kind of institutional endowments like universities and pensions that are backing those kinds of funds. So the time to get in is, is earlier. And fortunately, unfortunately, a lot of uh, emerging female GPs or those that are focusing on female founders at this point are still relatively small. So they're between, you know, 100 million or less. Most of them are under 100 million. And those are looking for individual LPs where the check sizes may be anywhere from kind of 100,000 up to maybe a million dollars that they might want uh their individual LPs to commit. So I think, you know, looking at your time that you want to invest in, the amount of capital that you want to invest, and the level of uh, interaction with actually sourcing uh, companies is what you want to, to think about when you're thinking about becoming an investor. That's perfect. And if that friend does end up saying, I have less time, I am interested in, in joining one of these newer, newer funds, how do I actually go about doing it? Yeah. What should they do if they decide that? So um, what is it? Is it the National Venture Capital Association? There is, a, I think, has a list of all of the kind of VCs that are out there. But when you really want to, the key when you're going into an actual fund is being able to talk to the the general partners and being able to find out is there is their style aligned with what you're looking for from a philosophy, the investing philosophy? Say, are they looking at an area you want to, like backing female founders or healthcare or some sector expertise? You want to make sure that you're aligning the the fund that you're looking at is is investing in the types of companies and not investing in the type of area. So, you know, cannabis is becoming huge right now. Some people are like, okay, I'm all in. This is the next frontier. Other people, for moral reasons or whatever, like, you know what, that's a great industry, but not for me. So you want to understand, will a fund be investing in areas where you might feel uncomfortable or you might not personally want to have your money going to? Because if you go into a fund, you do not decide what they invest in. You give them the money and you give your trust in them to go and pick the uh, the companies. So you want to understand their philosophy and their approach uh, so that you feel that you're comfortable. And then having, you know, asking for references, finding out you know about what they were like at either the fund they did before or if they were operators, the companies that they came from. So really kind of get to know them as individuals before you um, before you make it, or you can do kind of what Linnea did, right? So Gingerbread Capital is not um, does not take outside investment. They carved it out. She and George carved it out of their family office. So they are the sole source of capital. If you are in a position where you feel like you have the time, the inclination, and the desire, and the, the capital to set up your own structure, that's another opportunity for people as well that have both time and capital to do that. But um, to be an, a limited partner in other funds, I'd really recommend aligning on the philosophy, aligning on uh, being backed by the, the actual GPs, and um, understanding that you're making a commitment to, usually these are seven to 10 year windows, so you're putting away capital that you're not expecting to see for at least, say, 10 years. And you're not mortgaging your kids' college funds or anything like that. Uh, when you do this, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think there's there's a lot of resources out there. You just you just have to start, and uh, and I would say look at a handful of funds. Once once you've met 
five different GPs, you, you start to get a sense for it really, really quickly as to what they're all about. And, and it informs you and just allows you to, to target better. And I agree with Ida that attending, whether it's pitch events or incubator days or, um, or Plum Alley has, you know, is a terrific platform for this. Uh, there's a lot of ways to sort of get your feet wet without uh, just starting to, to write checks. But I would also say don't overthink it so hard because you're never going to get it perfect. When this asset class, there are going to be wins and losses, and that is probably the biggest thing to understand is you 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 have to have your expectations set uh you don't go in assuming that there's going to be a loss but you have to be cognizant of uh the 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 risk associated with this type of investing this carved out of your family office is interesting mm -hmm. i wonder if you have any advice for psychology or just approaches um balancing people choosing between philanthropy and <laughs> and yeah. early stage investing as an asset class. Yeah, yeah. So that was actually, I, my other light bulb moment was really around philanthropy. So I had uh, retired from Goldman Sachs and was spending a lot of time on philanthropy, which I would encourage everyone to do. So this is not in any way uh, a pitch against philanthropy, but I found <laughs> um, time and time again that um talking to uh, friends about making in investments was a relatively more difficult conversation uh, and create a lot more consternation than um, asking someone for a, a check to go towards a philanthropic organization. I think both are great things to do, but it was interesting. The amount of work that someone wants to run investment versus giving their money away was very, very different. And uh, <laughs> unless you have a really sophisticated foundation office that, that, you know, does these analytics. And then the other thing that I found is that there's a tremendous amount of crossover. And so you have to allow your philanthropic areas to actually inform you as an investor, because even in that world, you're going to make some very good investments and some poor investments. And, and I have done all of the above. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but what, but the light bulb for me was why, why was it harder to get someone to make an investment where they might actually get a possible return uh, versus uh, having them write a check. And by the way, I'm so grateful for all those people that write checks. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I just think just kind of doing a little bit of a, of a check on, okay, how am I, how am I looking uh, at this world? Um, to be clear, we do not look at gingerbread capital as a philanthropic organization. Um, we think investing behind um, women founders is a money-making um, idea for us. Now, the spin that I put on that is I really want the capital that and the and the profits that we make at Gingerbread Capital to continue to feed the ecosystem. So I always tell people, you know, you can explore money making and then you can decide you can give all that money away. I will choose to reinvest <laughs> it in in more women founders. And uh, and so that sort of gets me through that blend of feeling like um, it's still a mission, but I'm not giving my capital away. So. 
What's a question that you wish other investors asked more often of, of the entrepreneurs they were doing due diligence on? What should we be asking founders or what do you guys ask that you find really helpful? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I love to ask founders is what's keeping them up at night, right? Because, you know, part of the things is you have to act like everything's perfect. We're growing 100%. We're just going to be the next, you know, know, we can't say all some of these companies because they're on the decline in some of these ways. But, you know, you have to act (laughs) like you're going to the moon every time. But having the ability to be vulnerable and say, here's where I don't know or here's where I need help. Uh, is where I often find that women founders feel more comfortable coming to us and saying, okay, this is an area where I think, you know, I'm struggling or I'd love to get uh, a help advice introduction to. So that's kind of where we're honing in on all of these things look great. What's the one area where you wish it could be a little bit better? And then hearing how they answer it, if they try to really, if they do the humble brag of the, oh, you know, uh, my, you know, my weakness is I'm too strong or something like that. <laughs> you know, or do they really give candor? Right. But I, I, I'm staying up at night because I'm not sure how to spend all the money that are <laughs> Exactly. I think the other thing that I would tell investors, less of a question that they should act as, but a, but a mindset that they have to have. And I always say, that, like, the only thing you know about the spreadsheet or the model you're looking at is that it will not be that once you invest. Mm-hmm. And you have to expect that there are going to be many, many changes and many, many pivots. And I always say, expect the call. Hopefully it doesn't happen two days after the check clears um, <laughs> or 30 days after the check clears. But you are going to get that call, which will say that something goes terribly wrong. And so thinking about that in, va- in advance in terms of, okay, what are those things likely to be? What are those bumps that we're likely to face? It could be in this person's going to really need to complement their skill set with either a chief operating officer or um, a financial officer. Do they have the capability of making it through that? Or, okay, getting from zero to $10 million in a D2C business is actually, you know, happens a lot, but getting to 50 to 100 is very, very difficult and creates a lot of marketing spend. Does this team have the goods to go through it? So I almost try to predict what those big challenges are going to be going forward and then take a look at the founder and say, okay, can that person make it through that? And I think it's just a good um, question to ask yourself. And it stops me from just blindly believing in what someone is telling me. Mm. Will, will you guys send us off with with something you wish you knew when you were first starting down this pathway of investing in early stage companies? Um, well, I, I'd say expectations. You know, make sure your expectations are set in the right place. The other thing that a very smart investor told me is that the number one reason that companies fail is they run out of capital and money. And making sure that a company has a path towards future capitalization and understanding what your role is in that. And so sometimes as an investor, it's not that easy. You know, if if you're a significant investor in a company and there's a bump in the road and they need capital, you may be facing that quandary of you can't run for the hills. 
because you know you have to help them through the through this challenge and decide whether you're going to double down and help or you're going to just take a scrapper on it and so just understand that you will have those milestones along the way but the number one reason a company fails is that they run out of cash and then i also think um make sure that you are genuinely interested in what the company is doing and who this founder is and that you're comfortable with them calling you at odd hours, having your contact information, because you do want to get that, you know, maybe 11 p.m. call if if they if they know that you will be a source to stand by them and really not jump to immediate judgment. But you also want to make sure that like you you are as vested so that you will you, you're not going to be annoyed because you signed up for this. When you're writing that check, this is a long term relationship that you are entering into. So make sure you like them. I couldn't go out with anything better than that. So appreciate your time. Happy to do it. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. Somewhere earlier in your conversation, Edith said that women with agency were missing from the picture of investing. It's like the difference between diversity, equity, and inclusion. They had seen diversity change in investment banking through the years. There were far more women working, but they weren't in the same leadership positions. And that's when they began to develop a thesis that the world was going to need more female-founded companies, and they wanted to be the first ones in the well. And for you, whether it has to do with female entrepreneurs or climate change, or like if you believe the backlash against big tech will open up new ad tech platforms, whatever it is, to invest, you need to have a tightly wound thesis that you think you bring expertise on and predicts a future that you think others aren't seeing. Yes, and then you go put your money where your mouth is and check back in five to 10 years to see if you were right. And you sure hope you're right. Uh-huh. That sounds like a lot of fun. I like that view. <laughs> it's time to go, though. That's this episode of Off the Sidelines, an investor education podcast. We hope you'll join us for all of our episodes. If you have a question you want answered, tweet us at technical underscore L-Y or me at Christopher Wink. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Off the Sidelines on all of your podcast platforms of choice. Thanks to our partners and supporters at Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS, for making this series possible. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Episodes are produced by John Myers with production support by Sam Veganism Unchained Markowitz. Thank you for listening and join us next time. Bye.